Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Uh, Mark chapter 8, John chapter 4, wanted to let you know how grateful I am for what the Lord is doing through this church. This week, Andre and I will be going to a uh, life center um, for uh, a ministry that actually helps women um, walk through the decision not to have an abortion. And um, as well as minister to women who have had abortions. And we believe that God is the God of redemption and God is the God of love. And so it's an opportunity for us to be able, especially in the state of California, to look at the darkness that surrounds us and shine as a light. And this church is doing that well. As well, I want to let you know that uh, we, uh, Zach and I had uh, several meetings this week in regards to the nation of Iran, another very dark place. And to let you know in on a little secret, our church is currently translating 12 versions of the Bible for 12 different languages in Iran. And so we are preparing... For a great outpouring of God's Spirit. In fact, over the last 15 years, I have watched the church tremendously grow in the nation of Iran. And I am grateful that though uh, it may seem like it is the darkest place, rest assured that the light of the gospel is shining very brightly. Amen? Amen. Mark chapter 8, John chapter 4, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I'm so grateful for this church. I'm so thankful for faithful people on Super Bowl Sunday would realize, whether online or in this sanctuary, that you are the greatest event that we can participate in. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit that takes those like DJ prayed in the back of the church who don't even know why they're here. But your spirit has brought them, stumbling and struggling with faith, wondering why they continue to give in to the stronghold. But you have a plan. And you have a plan to weaken these feeble needs because though we are faithless, you are faithful. And we thank you, Jesus, for how you labored and suffered long with the disciples because you labor and suffer long with us. In Jesus' name we pray. How many of you, don't raise your hand, have a little personal struggle with your faith? A deep-rooted sin that just seems to knock you in the face Every other day. You have victory for a while, but then all of a sudden, temptation comes your way. Do you remember when you were a kid 
and you just couldn't get it. No matter how many times your parents tried to warn you and tell you, you would lead them to a place of frustration and they would say, knock it off. Well, as the kind of kid I was, I would always ask the self, never out loud, but to myself, well, where do you want me to knock it? <laughs> did, you ever, did your parents ever say, you're driving me crazy? I didn't know that was a place. Maybe you enjoyed taking them there. But you just couldn't change. Sometimes they would say, how many times do I have to tell you not to do that? Now, I've got a real question. How do you answer your frustrated parent when they ask you the question, how many times should I tell you? Uh, five more, please. <laughs> I mean, seriously. How many times did it take? Are you still trying to get it and you're over 50? Now, to be fair... How many said they would never say those things to their kids? And now you find yourself going, you're driving me crazy. How many times? What do you expect them to answer? Mom, five more times. I want you to say it five more times. It's amazing to me that sometimes we can put our heavenly father with the struggles that we've had in our past experience with our earthly parents. We think he's had it with us because we failed in faith again. And our faith experiences reminds us of our own childhood, constantly making the same mistake. The enemy beats us up with lies of condemnation. You're a Christian. You, uh, are you sure you're a Christian? No Christian I know would ever do that. And you begin to hear the frustration of your earthly parents instead of the consolation of our own father's words. Listen to what the Holy Spirit says concerning our faith. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus is committed to complete the work that he started in your life, even though it may take your lifetime. I want to prove this to you in the life of of our disciples. Let's review a little bit. Mark has been faithful to, for, to reveal to us the training of the twelve. He sent them on the mission trip, we learned. They returned exhausted, only to find themselves hosting a dinner party for 5,000 men, their women, and their children. And then, when they want to make him a king because of this incredible miracle... Jesus instead sends them out to a storm to expose their hardened hearts. You see, they didn't want to feed the 5,000 people. But now the disciples have a need. And when they see Jesus coming to them, passing right by them the way God passed by Elijah, they cry out to Jesus because now they have a need. And Jesus is revealing the truth of where they're at. He debunks and denounces the ritual washing tradition of the Pharisees that whenever they came in contact with a Gentile, they had to wash their hands. And he leads the disciples into Gentile territory to expose their own bigotry, to expose their own prejudice against the Gentiles. So he heals the Seraphonician woman's daughter. He touches the Gentile blind man's eyes and they're healed. 
There was no need for Jesus to wash his hands when he touched these Gentiles because he imparted cleaning to them. And the disciples are there, but the disciples, I'm sorry to say, haven't gotten it yet. They're still struggling. Now, you would think Jesus might say, you're driving me crazy. How many times do I have to tell you? Because they seem to go from one failure to the next. Let's not be hard on the disciples. Let's think about our own faith. Feels like with every one step forward, I take two steps backwards. I mean, it's really my wife's fault. She makes me so angry. It's really my neighbor. It's really my children. It's everyone else's fault. Adam and Eve. I just can't conquer that area of my life. It seems to always slap me in the face. I do good for a week and then all of a sudden, and with every failure, you feel like you almost did it. You did drive Jesus crazy. He is frustrated with you. But never forget, saint, that's a lie of the enemy. He will complete the work he started. Did you hear that? Mark chapter 8, take a look at verse 1. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, the multitude, being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, now that's so important and I have a question for all of us, what's your appetite? He says, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way. Now, I'm reading it like I believe Jesus was trying to get the point across to the disciples. For some of them have come from afar. Jesus says, hey guys, come over here. I have something that I need to tell you. Really, he has something that he needs to teach them. Remember, they're still struggling. And let me remind you, we're still in a Gentile region. He's not gone, and he's been there for three days, interacting and touching and living on this side of a hill with Gentiles. Think of the poor disciples and the constant trips to the Sea of Galilee to be washing their hands as they're surrounded by all of these filthy Gentiles. Jesus leaves them there. But I want you to see something, and maybe you'll write it down as our first point. Jesus has compassion on our weaknesses. He has compassion. You don't drive him crazy. He's not done with you. He has compassion on our weaknesses. You see, this crowd has been with the Lord for three days, and they're hungry. Jesus knows our human condition. He told the disciples in the garden, I know your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. He recognizes that we live in our flesh. He recognizes that our flesh is weak. Psalm chapter 103, going all the way back to the Old Testament, verse 14. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers we're dust. In other words, everything we come in contact with has the potential to get something dirty. We're human. 
Yesterday, I went to Pastor Zach's son's basketball game, Graham and Simeon. And at the end of the game, they gave them Valentine's cupcakes, red and pink. Well, Graham, he loves to eat. And he had this cupcake not only in his mouth, but all over him. He had red dye on his hands and on his face and pink on his other hand. And he just looked like a Valentine's cupcake while he was eating it. And as I was leaving, I went to go give him a hug. And as he was approaching to me, I said, (laughs) God bless you. (laughs) He was about to make me dirty. Well, this is what the disciples were thinking in this Gentile area. This is why Jesus would wash the disciples' feet. He would say, you're clean. I only need to wash your feet because he knows that we're made from dust and that when we go out into the dirty world, we have a tendency to get our feet dirty and we are clean. He sees us. We're washed by the blood of the Lamb. We're justified. We're sanctified. We will be glorified. But in our flesh, we can get dirty. So he says, let me wash you. Let me wash your feet. We do that through the confession of our sin. We do that through the recognition that he lived the perfect life for us. And that when we make a mistake, when we sin, that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all that dirtiness. He has compassion on our weaknesses. He knows what he's dealing with. Do you remember when Simon walked in on the scene? You are Simon. I know who you are. But you shall be Cephas. Hebrews tells us he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's not like some Greek god, some false god that capitalizes on our weaknesses to punish us. No, he's Jesus. He has compassion on our weaknesses. He uses our obstacles like he is with the disciples to develop opportunities for him to disciple us. That's what he's doing with our disciples. And that's what he does for us. Listen carefully. He patiently persists in his parenting despite our spiritual paralysis. What a wonderful Savior. And in his compassion, I love what he does with the disciples, he sets them up for success. He says, I have compassion. He's letting them know. He says to them, okay, I have compassion on this multitude. They've been with me a long time. Hey, guys, do you remember? We've done this before. Remember the 5,000 Jews that we fed earlier? I said the very same thing. I'm setting you up for success here. They watched him feed the 5,000 with his compassion. And he describes to them the specific need. He says to them, they have nothing to eat. He's doing everything he can to get the message across. Now, you would think that one of the disciples, one of the 12, would go, I got this one. We've been through this test before, okay? Remember, we failed miserably with the feeding of the 5,000. Okay, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's our fish and five loaves. Okay, Jesus, do it. Not our disciples. Take a look at Mark chapter 8, verse 4. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? 
Are you serious? How many of you, the disciples are driving you crazy right now? How many of you, you're like, okay, we're done with them. Pick a new set. Okay, like you just did the feeding of the 5,000. And now you're going to say, who can satisfy these people in the wilderness? They're asking the same God who ran a daily diner for millions of Jews in the wilderness for 40 years. He provided food in the wilderness for millions of Jews for 40 years on a daily basis, and he took one day off. That's the God you're asking? How can one satisfy? What are you thinking? You're driving me crazy. When will you get it spiritually? Trust me, I'm misunderstood too. It's like the story of my life. Siri just said, I misunderstood you. No, you didn't. You just don't know how to accept it, Siri. Listen, when you're in front of thousands of people, you just go with whatever comes your way. The disciples, like Siri, have not come to the place of realizing the one whom they speak to is satisfaction. My question, have we? Does Jesus satisfy us in this wilderness? Jesus doesn't give up. Take a look at Mark chapter 8, verse 5. He asked them. Now, this is how I believe he asked them. How many loaves do you have? He's given it everything he's got. He is trying to help our disciples out. Take a look. And they said seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. Once again, organizing. And he took the seven loaves and gave thanks following the same procedure as the 5,000. He broke them and gave them to his disciples because he wants us to be a part of the work to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish. Surprise, surprise, look what they were hiding. And having blessed them, he he said to set them also before them. So they ate, is anyone surprised, and were filled And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now, these are like huge sacks that would hold hundreds of pounds of wheat, not the little small lunch boxes from uh, feeding the 5,000, the 12 small baskets. Now, those who had eaten were about 4,000. These were Gentiles. And he sent them away immediately. After he sent them away, he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Is anyone surprised? I mean, we walked into this story. We got it. Why can't the disciples get it? He repeats the miracle exactly the same way that he ministered to the 5,000 Jews. So that when in the first century church, the Jews and Gentiles were arguing, they couldn't say, well, Jesus served the 4,000 better than he served the 5,000. Because you know we would do it. And what I find amazing is that those who spent time with the Lord, they left completely satisfied, overwhelmed and overjoyed and overfilled. And the disciples also were holding 
seven sacks of leftovers. Truly, Jesus is making it very clear. Not only will he give the crumbs that fall from the table, but he will overwhelm us with his compassion in our weaknesses, no matter who we are, or no matter where we've come from, or what we have done. Jesus has compassion on our weaknesses. Number two, I want you to write it down. Jesus strategically helps us get where he wants us to be because he knows what he's dealing with, you. I'm going to write a book one day, Parenting, The Art of Manipulation. (laughs) Think about it. We re-divert their attention. We try to focus off of something other than what they're throwing the temper tantrum on. Jesus strategically knows he's dealing with a human being. He's dealing with someone that he has given a free will. So he strategically gets us to where he wants us to be. Now, I need to remind you of something. You have to remember that we're in the area of the Decapolis. Go back up with me, if you would, and look at Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Again, departing from the region of Tyre Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Has anyone ever asked, where did these 4,000 Gentiles come from? Well, we know where they come from. Mark set us up for this in Mark chapter 5. Go back there with me. I want you to see this. Mark chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 18. Mark Mark chapter 5, I'm going to pick it up in verse 18. Jesus has come in contact with the demoniac, and he has delivered the demoniac. The demoniac wants to go with Jesus. Pick it up there in verse 18. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed, the demoniac, begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus didn't permit him. But he said to him, go home, go to the Decapolis to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in the Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. You want to know why 4,000 Gentiles gathered on the beach a couple weeks later? This demoniac who was delivered did his job. He told everyone what Jesus had done for him, and they came to see him just like the Samaritans came to see what Jesus had done for the Samaritan woman. You remember the story? Turn with me to John chapter 4. Keep your finger in Mark. We'll be back there. John chapter 4, Jesus has ministered to a Samaritan woman. And in John chapter 4, verse 38, he is teaching the the disciples a very important lesson. They have gone to Samaria to go to In-N-Out to bring some bag lunch home to Jesus. And the only thing that they're concerned about is a double-double. They're not concerned about the Samaritans. They could care less about those filthy dogs. They're going to have to wash their hands when they come out of the Samaritan village because a Samaritan handed them their double-double. Jesus says in John chapter 4, verse 38, I sent you to reap. Here's why he sent them to Samaria, not for a double-double. I sent you to reap for which you have not labored. I gave you easy picking in this Samaritan village. Others have labored, 
and you entered into their labors. See, Jesus, while he was at that well, knew that the disciples were not going to share the gospel with the Samaritans. And so when that woman showed up, he shared the gospel with her, and she went and did what the disciples were supposed to do, but they didn't. She ministered the gospel. She caused a a revival. And Jesus uses this experience and says, I sent you for easy picking, but you didn't pick. You didn't pick. This woman picked. Now, now he's teaching the same lesson. He's in a Gentile area, and the demoniac who was delivered did what the disciples refused to do. Don't forget when the Syrophoenician woman, whose daughter was demon-possessed, the disciples wanted her to go away. Jesus hasn't given up on our disciples. He's using these experiences as a good parent raises their child. But I want you to see, and let's take a look at another strategy that Jesus is using. And the disciples are probably not even aware of what's going on, but Jesus is purposing to move them along as an incredible parent. Mark chapter 8. Let's take, go back there with me if you would. Mark chapter 8. Let's see another strategy of our great heavenly father. Verse 11. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him. Now remember, they've left the Gentile area. They've gone back to the Jewish area that they were at in Mark chapter 7. So the Pharisees, they come out and begin to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply, and I've circled that. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Surely I say to you, no shine shall be given to this generation. Would you watch me for a moment? Why does this generation? Sometimes when I think we're reading the Bible, we take the emotion out of it. He sighed deeply. Now, I know this seems like a commercial break in the continuity of this whole story. And probably it seems like a commercial break because the editors of the Bible, they put the Pharisees seek a sign, like it's a new title. But I need to let you know, titles are not inspired. They're just put there to help us understand what's going on. But sometimes they can be a detriment and let us feel like, okay, this is another thing, or this is another thing, when there's continuity to this whole story. You see, Jesus has gone back to the place that he was at in chapter 7 where he debunked and denounced the tradition of these Pharisees. And this is where this whole lesson for the disciples started. So these Pharisees, they're still mad. And they come out and they dispute They start an argument with the Lord. They're mad that Jesus humiliated them, the big religious leaders, in front of all the people. Jesus, he's using this moment to drive home his main point, disciple. You see, Mark purposely put this commercial break because Peter, the disciple who is giving the story to Mark, finally got it. You are Simon. You shall be Cephas. 
he finally gets the point. The God of the universe is right in front of the Pharisees and they want something more. Give us a sign. Because you're not enough. I'm going to stop for a minute and think about that. Is Jesus enough for us? Will one better job do it? Will a child do it? Oh, no, I didn't mean that. I love you. So sweet. I have nine children. I didn't even hear that. Like, seriously, people, they, how do you do it? I don't even hear it. When you raise nine children, noise is like, your ten is my two. Like, you know. Like I said, when you're in front of a thousand people, you just go with whatever comes your way. And Jesus sighs deeply. And my question is, is Jesus enough for you? Do you have to have a child? Do you have to have a grandchild? Do you have to have that job? Is it Jesus and something, or is Jesus enough? They sighed. He sighed, and this word means he groaned. That sigh left an indelible memory in Peter's mind that he never forgot. To see the Lord agonize over this lamentable moment of the Pharisees that Christ was not enough. He sighed. Now we're going to get to the culmination of this lesson for the disciples. Would you take a look at verse 13? He left them. This is the saddest verse in the Bible. He left them, getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. He left them there. What a sad verse. Jesus will never override our free will, but he will constantly pursue us. He'll be back again. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. They didn't have more than one loaf with them in the boat. This is Peter telling Mark with laughter, like, what I'm about to tell you is so embarrassing, Mark, but go ahead and write it down, okay? Then he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it's because we have no bread. At this point, I want to go, hello, you are driving me crazy. Jesus uses the experience, a little commercial break, and their time in the boat. So basically, the disciples are having their devotions. They're in the morning on the boat with Jesus. They're having their devotions, and Jesus is using their life experience to express a powerful truth. Take heed, beware of the leaven and the Pharisees, of the Pharisees and the leaven of heaven, uh, of Herod. And as soon as the disciples hear leaven, they don't even hear what Jesus says spiritually. As soon as they hear leaven, they think bread. He knows. He knows. He knows we're all going to be hungry. Who told him? How how did he know we didn't have enough? And they begin to reason. Let me tell you what that word means. They begin to blame each other. It was Peter. He forgot. No, it wasn't. It was Andrew. No, it wasn't. It was James. No, it wasn't. It was John. And in the middle of this argument, they are completely missing the point that Jesus is warning them of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the worldliness 
of the Herodians. It'll never satisfy you. Religion will never satisfy you. Worldly appetite will never satisfy you. They're missing the point. And so Jesus, verse 17, being aware of it, right in the middle of the argument, said to him, Why do you reason? Why are you fighting? Because you've got no bread. Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Church, listen. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Now, I've underlined this. When I broke the five loaves for the four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said, twelve. Also, I've underlined this. When I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you don't understand? If I was Jesus, it would say first, you're driving me crazy. Not our Jesus. He begins to reveal the reason for the reasoning. He's revealing why they can't get it spiritually. He begins to reveal why they're struggling with sin. He's beginning to reveal why they've got inner spiritual turmoil. He reveals why they can't perceive the power that's right in front of them to live the godly life. He reveals why they can't understand why this has nothing to do with physical bread, but a spiritual bread that will satisfy. He reveals why their heart is hardened to his way, to his truth and his life. He says, when I, when I, church, will you write this down? Christ alone must completely satisfy. They couldn't see what was right in front of them because they were looking to be satisfied by the bread of the world instead of the bread of life. Their mind was on worldly things. They hungered for the things of this world instead of who was right in front of him. But church, I want you to hear the answer to your life's cry. It's John chapter 6, verse 35. John chapter 6, verse 35. I'm the bread of life. I'm the complete satisfier. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus made it clear, no job, no spouse, no house, no anything will satisfy the way that he will. You will always want more if you want what the world wants. Church, the disciples had a lack of understanding. They had a lack of the insight to the power that was available to their spiritual walk Because their mind were on the things of this world. Their appetite was for the things of this world. They were struggling to defeat sin. They were struggling with their fleshly habits. They were struggling to get their spiritual act together because it all flows from the wrong appetite. So we have to ask ourselves the question, 
What's your appetite? What you hungry for? When you got time, where do you go? When you got money, what do you buy? What are you hungry for? And are you paying for McDonald's when we have a gift certificate to Ruth Chris's Steakhouse, but you're choosing McDonald's and paying for it? It's a comparison. It's a weak comparison to the things of the world as compared to the things of Christ. Are you choosing to dine with the delicacies in the devil's cafe? And let me tell you, it's laced with the poison of hell, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Or are you choosing to feast at the supper of Christ where you will be completely filled and satisfied in Christ alone? In Christ alone. Now, church, we all know the results of poor eating habits. And the same is true spiritually. Though chips, and we will have some today, and chicharrones, pastries, cake, cookies, and candies, they'll fill you. But only the right diet will help your body live to its fullest potential. The same is true spiritually. If you hunger for anything other than Christ, you will always struggle with the flesh. But if Christ becomes your all in all, you will find the things of the flesh will begin to fade. I want to close with this. There are three groups of people here that we get to learn from. And there's a question that I'm asking you as you decide who you're going to learn from. Are you just not getting it spiritually? You find yourself struggling with the same old thing over and over again. And Jesus has been so compassionate with your weakness. He has been so strategic in trying to get you here. It's no surprise that you came this Sunday. You get to choose your appetite. You get to choose where you will dine. A gift certificate to Ruth's Chris or go pay for McDonald's. To dine with the delicacies of the devil or feast at the supper of the Lamb. These three people is the crowd. What I find amazing about the crowd, the crowd abided with Christ and they left completely satisfied. They chose to labor in the wilderness with Jesus and if you choose in this wilderness of the world to labor with him, I guarantee you will be completely satisfied with Christ and the appetite for the world. Maybe you're a Pharisee. Christ is good and all, but give me something else. Show me the cross. I love it. Love that you died for me, but I want that job. I want a child. I want a spouse. I'm Phil, and I'm up here dressed in my three-piece suit, and I'm letting everyone know I'm single. (laughs) And I love him to death, but I had to do it.
Christ isn't enough for you. They were left in the most pitiable place. He left them alone to themselves. And let me tell you something about yourself. You will never look good enough. You will never have enough. You will never be enough. Or you can be a disciple. And you can surrender today what you got. All I got is five loaves and a few fish. But I'm giving it to you, Jesus. I'm giving you what I got. I'm going to give you my time. When I got it, it's yours. I'm going to give you my talent. I'm going to give you my treasure. I'm going to give you my testimony because you're enough for me. Let me tell you, you'll get your spiritual act together and you will find the fulfillment of the abundant life that Jesus alone can offer. I'm going to ask you the same question. Do you remember? How many baskets did you pick up? feeding of the 5,000. They said 12 baskets. Now let me tell you about those baskets. They were little lunch boxes. That's what they were. It's a little lunchbox basket. Jesus is saying, I'm enough for you. And then he asked another question. How many baskets did you pick up with the 4,000? And they said, seven sacks of food. He says this, Not only am I enough for you, I'm enough for you to share me with everyone else. That's my Jesus. Peter finally got it. That's why he embarrassed himself in this story. Peter finally got it that he gave his life, death upside down on a cross, He gave his life because Jesus was enough for him. His brother Andrew, as he approached his cross, Clement, the disciple of Andrew, said this of him. As Andrew was walking to his cross, he said to his cross, O cross, you who beheld the lover of my soul, how I've longed to embrace you. Christ is enough for me. Can you get there? I guarantee it will answer every life question you've ever had. Would you pray? Our Father, oh, that you would be enough for us. In the secret places of our life, would you be enough? In the struggles of our sin, would you be enough? Failures repeated over and over again. Would you help us to make you enough? Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.